Well, good morning. I think this is maybe the only time in my life where I'll feel weird for not being in a robe, so excuse my not matching the pastors this morning. This morning we'll be reading from Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. And as you turn there, you'll remember that the book of Romans is really Paul unpacking everything coming from verses 16 through 17, that the gospel is the power of God to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that is the righteousness of God. And building that case, he starts by showing how everyone has fallen short, starting mostly with the Gentiles, those who have refused God, who have turned to things other than God. And then, though in chapter 2, he quickly turns to the Jews and says, if you think you are any better, know that you fall just as short as the Gentiles do. And he ends there in 2.11 from last week with these words, for God shows no partiality. This week in our text, we'll see Paul now expanding that theme, going from the Jews, God showing no partiality to everyone in the entire world. God does not show partiality to anyone. So we'll start there in chapter 2, verse 12, and go through verse 16. Please give attention to the reading of God's word. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would send your spirit now, open the hearts of your people, open our eyes, open our minds, that we might see Christ. Father, I pray that you would guide my tongue and my lips and the words that I say as I seek to properly communicate the things that you have for us. Lord, I ask all this in Christ's mighty and matchless name. Amen. Well, it was about 80 years ago, last year, I guess, 81 years ago this year, that the story of a wooden puppet dreaming of being a real boy captured American audiences. And if you remember, central to that movie, this Pinocchio, was him coming to life, right? When the blue fairy descends and hears the prayer of Geppetto, and so she comes and animates this wooden boy. But he's missing something, right? He's missing a key part of what it means to be human. If you remember, he doesn't know right from wrong. And so the blue fairy appoints one Jiminy Cricket to be this guide for Pinocchio. Here's what she says. I dub you, Jiminy Cricket, Pinocchio's conscience, Lord, high keeper of the knowledge of right and wrong, counselor in moments of high temptation, and guide along the straight and narrow path. Arise, Sir Jiminy Cricket. And then following this, immediately after, is that scene, that song that sticks in everyone's head like an earwig, the, when you're in trouble and you don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle and always let your conscience be your guide. And one thing I think maybe Disney and the author of the Pinocchio story was unintendingly saying was that 
we all have a moral compass, right? We all know right and wrong. We all know what it means to do right and to do wrong. In fact, that's what it means to be human. As, you, as we said, the, the path of Pinocchio was one from a puppet to a real boy, and Jiminy Cricket was to play this conscience until he became this real boy. And then Jiminy was supposed to fade off into the sunset. And today in our passage, I think Paul, we would see, would agree with Disney to a certain degree. He would say, you're right, the the conscience is central to the human being. We all know right from wrong. And perhaps that's even most important for Paul, is that everyone knows right from wrong. However, unlike Pinocchio, unlike Jiminy, unlike the Blue Fairy, Paul does not tell us that our conscience is our guide to some sort of self-fulfillment. Right? It's not our, our, our compass navigating the walks of life until we become who we're supposed to be. No, for Paul, the conscience is the internal witness, that voice inside of us which tells us something is wrong. Something which tells us there is a final judgment coming. As one theologian says, it is the consciousness in man, the awareness in man, that in his moral activity, that is doing anything in this life, he is bound to a divine standard of judgment standing above him by which he is to measure himself. Paul here shows us that there is knowledge in every man, that there is a standard by which all men are to act. And all men know that standard, and all men know that one day they will be judged by that standard. And one day, Paul says, Paul uses this then to build a case to say that we will all stand condemned. There is no escape, because one day our own hearts, our own minds will testify before the Lord and before us, saying, we knew all along. We knew all along. So today in our passage, we're going to look at just those three parts of the conscience. That is the standard, which God holds us up to. The principle, that is that everyone knows this standard. And then lastly, the outcome, that is that everyone's conscience will testify against them. And ultimately, we all stand condemned. So the standard, the principle, and lastly, the outcome. But first, the standard. And we won't talk too much about this because Caleb talked about this last week. But Paul starts off in verses 12 and 13, making sure we have got it straight that there is a standard for all men. Look at this. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And here's where he gets to the heart of it. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And it should not surprise us that God has standards, right? Whether you were raised in the church or out of the church, we all have standards. So surely God, the king of the universe, is able to say what makes right and what makes wrong. And we see here that the standard for God is nothing less than perfect obedience to the law of God. Perfect obedience to the law that he has revealed, But he splits up, Paul splits up humanity into two groups, right? He's binary, unlike our 2021 world, right? He has two groups in mind, those who have the law, Jews, and those who do not have the law, 
However, you'll see that the standard is the same. The standard is, have you sinned? It's not, have you kept the law? Do you know the law? It's, have you sinned? Whether you sin without the law or sin with the law, you're both going to perish. But one just has a higher judgment awaiting for it. Look there, it says, for those who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And here we see in these verses really the first time that Paul puts a name to the problem which troubles mankind. He's mentioned it, he's hinted at it before, but here for the first time he calls it what it is, sin. It's sin that is our problem. It's not a a failure to do the right thing here and there. It's not a failure to really get to the full pinnacle of human achievement. That's not the problem. The problem is sin. And at the same time, he notes the, the goal, the thing that every person strives for. How are we made right with God? He notes, by noting to the standard, he shows that our problem is sin, and the thing we all search for is, how are we made right with God? And here he says it again, I'll say it once more for effect, he says that either you do the whole law, or you do none of it. Either you're one who does the law to the fullest degree, or you're merely a hearer of the law who fails in even the smallest part. This morning I was flipping through Instagram and, you know, as one does, and I saw on ESPN that Steph Curry recently, because he's so good at shooting, right? I mean, I think we can all agree, maybe the best shooter of all time. Steph Curry is so good that in practice they've adjusted the rules a little bit. Now in practice, you know, they've got sensors on the ball, sensors in the rim, everything, and so now they sense to see if he hit the dead center of the rim, right? And if it doesn't hit the dead center of the rim, if it doesn't make a perfect swish, then they count it as a miss in practice, right? I mean, and if that doesn't show you just how good he is, then we should go watch some highlights after this. But just imagine, right? Imagine someone comes up to you, your boss, your wife, your husband, says, hey, for every moment of the day, I want you to sit here and shoot baskets, right? And if you don't hit the dead center of the rim, you're fired. You're done. Right? I'm no longer your friend. I'm no longer your spouse. This is what you have to do to keep up. Right? Can you imagine? I mean, can you, I, I, I feel good when I make one shot in a game, let alone hit the dead center of the rim. But here Paul is saying that The way, the standard of keeping the law is hitting the dead center of the rim every time you shoot, every time you act, every time you think, every time you breathe, you do it with perfect obedience. And you might think Paul is getting repetitive, right? We've heard this. We've heard this in verses 18 through 32. We heard it in 2, 1 through 11. We're going to hear it again in chapter 3. And yet Paul is forcing the issue time and time again because we just don't get it. We don't get how far we have fallen short. We always want to hold ourselves up to our own standard. 
our own way of living rather than the way that God has prescribed to us. However, you might almost hear, right, if you're a Gentile, if you're one who doesn't know Christ and you're reading this letter, perhaps you might be thinking the same thing. Well, that's not fair, right? That's just, that doesn't seem right that God would hold one people to a standard, the standard that he's never showed them. Right? I mean, the Jews seem well on the way to being doers of law, so it makes sense that they would be judged by the law. But why are the Gentiles judged by the law? They never knew it. They never stood at Mount Sinai and saw the law being carved out by the hand of God. So now Paul turns to answer that objection. So now we come to our second point, that the principle, that is that all men know the law. All men know the law. And as you read this, you can almost hear the interjection, right? Whoa, 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 whoa. You're telling me that I've got to make a perfect shot every time when I never knew the rules? You know, it's be like me on my high school basketball team, that one shot that I made in high school, and the coach saying, coming up and saying, hep, sorry, you're off the team. I was like, whoa, what? Yeah, well, you didn't hit the center of the rim. Well, surely if I didn't know that, then I would have plausible deniability, right? I mean, that's a thing. I mean, I think that's a thing, lawyers. You can tell me later, but plausible deniability, right? I didn't know, so surely I'm off the hook. Well, here Paul is now telling us that no one can say that. No one can ever say, I didn't know. Everyone knows the law, only some know it differently than others. Israel had the law written on tablets, but as we'll see, all men have the things of the law written on their hearts. And you'll see that Paul describes this knowledge here in two different ways. First, he says that Gentiles just show that they know the law, they do the law in their everyday life. Right? He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So the first picture Paul gives is that just in Gentiles and non-believers' everyday lives, they show that they know how to act. Right? They show that it's not good to steal, it's not good to cheat on their spouses, it's not good to you know, do X, Y, and Z. And every time they do something good, they show that they know the law. Right? Now that, may, that one time may be one out of a hundred, one out of a, one out of a thousand, but every time they do something good, they show that they know the law of God. And here we get back to that Pinocchio point, right? That knowing morality, knowing right from wrong, is what it means to be human. Right? We're broken by sin. We're warped and twisted into ourselves. But at the end of the day, knowing right from wrong makes us human. Right, it makes us image bearers of God. We are moral creatures because we bear the image of a moral God, of a God who does perfect justice. But then Paul goes on to describe it a second way, and I've already mentioned this way, but he describes it as us having the works of the law written on our hearts. Describes the works of the law written on the Gentiles' hearts. 
And if you're an acute Bible reader, you might pick up some sort of reference perhaps to the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 33, where God says he's going to write the law on the hearts of his people. However, I want to, to notice one difference. Right? Paul doesn't say the law is written on their hearts. It's almost like he knows that some people's minds might go there. He say, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the works of the law. Right? The works of the law are written on our hearts. We know exactly what are the things to do and not do. And yet he's showing something else, too, by that language of written on our hearts. That these rules, these ways of living are not arbitrary. They're not the, the custom of some people or just my own personal preference. Right? No, these are rules printed on the hearts of men by God himself. If there's one thing the past two years have taught us, through COVID, through um, racial riots, through all sorts of political discussions, there's one thing all this has taught us is that everybody has a very strong sense of right and wrong. Everybody, regardless of what side of the aisle you line up on, everyone has a very strong sense of right and wrong. And there are times when even non-believers, those who hate God in their hearts, will go and do things which, for all intents and purposes, are good things. They are in accord with God's law. You know, just think about it. Non-believers are faithful to their spouses. If statistics are right, perhaps even more faithful to their spouses than Christians. They don't steal often. They love their kids. They do good work. They work hard. We can even go to more extreme examples, right? Most men know that you're not supposed to kill. Most people know you're not supposed to steal. And even those most extreme cases where people do kill, where people do steal, they show that they know what's right by not wanting that to happen to themselves. Right? A, a thief would be no good if he just let everyone steal from him, right? A murderer shows that he knows murder is wrong by fighting for his life, by fleeing police, by trying to avoid justice. Every time someone who has never heard the law, never heard the gospel, and they act in a way that mirrors the law of God, they show that they know the law of God, that it's written on their hearts, that it's part of what it means to be an image bearer of God. And this should humble us as God's people. This truth should humble us. Right? Oftentimes, non-believers seem so much better at keeping the law than we can, right? Oftentimes, it seems like in a strict one-to-one -one comparison, many non-believers may be better people than Christians. And it should humble us because it makes us realize that there is nothing that we have done to warrant our salvation, there is nothing that we could have possibly done, no rule that we could have kept which forced God's law, love upon us. It was God's own gracious, eternal love that he had for his people that caused him to love you. But that's the principle. All men know the law. So we have the standard, 
the principle, and now we have the outcome. That is that our conscience bears witness and everyone faces judgment. All men stand condemned. Look here at the last half of verse 15 going on through verse 16. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So Paul's great conclusion, his grand finale to this argument that the Gentiles know the law, that everybody knows the law, whether revealed or not, his conclusion is that no one is guiltless. All men stand condemned. And the thing he turns to to show that is men's conscience. Men's own consciences are proof that they are not guiltless. Every one of your consciences, all, my conscience, is proof that I am not guiltless. If you remember, I defined conscience earlier as that consciousness, the, the knowledge within a man that there is a moral standard to which he will be judged. And here we see Paul telling us that at the end of time, our conscience, consciences are going to testify against us. That knowledge that you knew all along will almost stand outside of yourself at the last day and point to you and say, nope, you knew the whole time. You have no escape. But if you notice, there's almost a, there's a, there's a present future tension here, right? He's got present verbs looking towards a future end. Our conscience accuses us, present tense, excuses us, present tense. But look here, he shifts forward. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. And here we see that it's not just the last day that our consciences bear witness. Right? It's every day of our lives. Every day our conscience is telling us, you did wrong, you did wrong, you did wrong. Could have done this better. Right, but notice he has that one little line there, or even excuse them. Right, so every once in a while, every once in a blue moon, you'll get that, oh, hey, I did good that time, right? I made that shot. I made that perfect basket. But that should only seek to, stri seek to have you turn around and notice all the other mistakes that you made along the way. And there's this back and forth of accusation and defense, accusation and defense in our present life, which proves to you even now, which proves to believers and non-believers alike that one day they will stand judgment for what they have done. And there's a sense in which we should be willing to listen to our consciences, right? Pinocchio didn't get it all wrong to let your conscience be your guide. But the question is, is it always? Right? Is it always right? And if you'll remember in that scene, there's a sort of humorous twist of irony as Jiminy Cricket is leading the little um, cuckoo clock people around, telling, singing this song to them. 
He belts out for the last time, always let your conscience be your guide, and then he runs right into the wall of the clock, right? Pinocchio does the same thing. He belts out for one last time, always let your conscience be your guide, before stumbling over pots and pans, hurtling headlong into disaster. Just like our hearts are fallen, just like our, every part of us is broken by sin, so our consciences, too, will betray us. Right? Our consciences don't always tell us what's right and what's wrong. But what they will always do is to point back retroactively and say, you did this wrong. Right? In the moment, it'll seem right, it'll seem good. But then suddenly, 10 minutes later, your own heart, your own mind stands back and accuses you, saying, you know what you did wrong. So we might say, while consciences fail, it's more our own sinful hearts failing to register the beep in that sonar, right? Our consciences, that beep telling us when danger is near, and sin has made it quiet, it's made it soft, and it's plugged our ears and shut our eyes so that we can't tell exactly when our conscience is telling us something is right and wrong. To illustrate this, one of my favorite books, is a book by a guy named John Updike, it's called Rabbit Run. And if you know anything about John Updike, you know that he was not one to listen to his conscience very often. But he has a beautiful picture of this conscience, even in the most fallen of men. This story, Rabbit Run, is a story about a man named Rabbit Angstrom. He's a 26-year-old salesman, former star in basketball in high school, and he's just aimless in life. He never succeeded past senior year of high school when he hit the game-winning shot in the state championship. And then suddenly, almost without thinking about it, he leaves his wife, his two-year-old daughter, and begins to live with a girl he knew from high school for no reason, simply to spice things up. And towards the end of the book, this is him speaking to his mistress, Mary, saying, all I know is what feels right. You feel right to me. Sometimes Janice, his wife, used to. Sometimes nothing does. And so there you see that tension of the conscience never really gets it right in this life, right? Our consciences can be so based on our own personal feelings. But just after saying that, he walks downtown and he comes to a fork in the road, right? And he finds himself torn between his wife and his mistress, what he calls the former, the right way and the good way and the latter, that is the mistress, down Summer Street to where the city ends. And he tries to picture what life would be like if he continued on down Summer Street back towards his mistress. And all he can picture is what he calls a huge vacant field full of cinders. And his heart goes hollow. So even there, he stands torn in his life and he knows if I go back to my mistress, back to Mary, I know that's where destruction lies. Right? Even the most warped and twisted of hearts come to a place where they say, 
this is right and this is wrong. And if they choose the wrong, then their own hearts testify against them. Or perhaps to use a more modern example, Adele just released her newest album two weeks ago. And I've never heard an album made for this reason, but this is the reason she gave for making this album. So she recently divorced her husband for almost no reason. In an interview, she said that she wrote this album as a letter to her son so that he can listen to it in his 20s or 30s and finally understand, this is her talking now, who I am and why I voluntarily chose to dismantle his entire life in the pursuit of happiness. Now, surely her conscience was wrong in guiding her into this divorce, but hopefully you can even see in this interview that she knows that she did wrong. She knows in her heart that she did wrong. And we can go through example after example after example. We all have our own understanding of what this is like, but one thing is clear. Our consciences are fractured, but there will always be something Something that comes up, no matter how hard we push, and we can push and shove it down and ignore it and avoid it the rest of our lives. But one day, there's going to be a day when that conscience perks back up and lists everything you've ever done before the judge of all the earth. Now, surely this is not good news for everybody. This is terrible news for all of us. But know, Christian, that it is good news for how you talk to non-believers. It is good news for the way you speak to non-believers. Because you can come with the words of the gospel knowing that there are consciences weighed down heavy by sin. You can bring the word of life to people who are shrouded in darkness, and know that there are hearts out there that will turn and be saved. One theologian once wrote this, that Scripture is powerful in its witness because it is the Word of God and finds resonance in the rational and moral nature of every human being. The Word of God, Scripture, the words of life, the gospel, find resonance and are powerful because everyone has a moral nature. That conscience that can seem so quiet, so wrong at times, still perks up every once in a while. And that's where you, Christian, can slip in and bring bread to a beggar, bring water to a thirsty soul. Because one day, as Paul tells us here, there will come judgment. And that's right there at the end, this outcome, that one day everyone will stand before the throne of God and ask whether we obey the law or not. We can only say no. But there's that curious little line there, isn't there? According to my gospel. Everyone's being judged according to the gospel. And when we hear the gospel, even as seasoned church veterans, right, we may intentionally or 
jump all the way to the good news of salvation. And that's right, and that's true. The gospel is eternal life for all those who believe. But we can almost instinctively, perhaps willfully, ignorantly, want to jump over the fact that it also means judgment. The gospel also means judgment. And here we see one of the most terrifying lines of judgment in all of Scripture. God judges the secrets of men. Judging the secrets of men. Can you imagine a more terrifying reality than standing before God, the king of the universe, and him seeing everything your mind has ever thought of? Everything your heart has ever imagined. I know what lurks in here and deep in the recesses of my mind. And I'm sure you know what lurks in your mind. The wickedness, the evil, the desires that if you told anyone at any time, anywhere, they would cast you out. And here Paul tells us that one day those things are going to appear. So let me ask you, is your conscience weighing you down? If you feel the tug of those conflicting thoughts accusing you day after day after day, do not wait until that final day when You won't be able to say anything when you will be without excuse. There'll be no one to defend you, only to prosecute you. But come now, come to Christ, come to mercy's store. Because when you do, when you look to Christ, even the heaviest of consciences, even the most coldest of hearts, will find a God who smiles and asks no more. Let's pray. Our great and holy God, we marvel at the mystery of your grace and that we who have secrets and sins that would cause us to be an outcast anywhere we turn, Father, you and your love have sent us Christ Father, I pray that you would enliven our consciences. Send your Holy Spirit to make us walk in the life of Christ. Father, I pray for those who do not know you here this morning, that those whose consciences are weighed down by sin, Lord, would you show them Christ? Would you show them the the life and the peace and the joy everlasting that is held therein? We ask all of this in his name. Amen.